0: pray and I trust uh, that you are well. And so this morning, um, as we start what we would call Passion Week, uh, we're going to be looking um, at what I believe to be one of the most significant texts um, in, in the New Testament and, and also within the totality of the scriptures. So um, one, of the, uh, one of the only events this morning to be portrayed within all four gospel narratives, and that's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So uh, grab a Bible and join me, turn with me to um, John chapter 12. And, and as we walk through verses 12 through 19 today, uh, my hope is that you will see Jesus. As you, as you walk through this text with me, I hope that you will see Jesus and the real Jesus unfold um, before your eyes. And so we know this, the, the Old Testament has pointed to Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled what was prophesied. And, and then now we wait for his return for him to return as our Lord and King. That's where we're at. And before, before we read this text this morning, we need to understand actually what's going on behind the scenes. See, Jesus had been, had been healing the afflicted and teaching with authority um, about himself and, and the kingdom of God. And so he is, he is challenging the religious Pharisees of the day and he is showing his true power. He is, he is teaching the disciples that he is the truth, that he is uh, the resurrection. He is teaching the disciples that he has the authority and that he is salvation. And so in, in chapter 11, before where we are today, we, we see Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And, and this text tells us that Lazarus has been dead for, for four days. And, and that's significant. And, and here's the question. Why is that significant? Because here's the thing. On the third day of death in Jewish custom is when the soul left the body is when the soul left the body. And so, so it's significant because the fourth day means that Lazarus was dead. Like he was, he was very, very dead. There, there was no hope of bringing him back. He was gone. And so we, we, we see that Jesus actually walks and he calls Lazarus forth out of the tomb. And at that point, there was no rationalizing that, ra- that Lazarus really wasn't dead. There was no rationalizing that he could have been asleep or anything else like that. He was four days dead. He was gone, and Jesus called him from the grave. See, this miraculous act proved his power, and, and many actually, they turned to Jesus, and they believed in him because of, of this one thing. And so, so we see in this text, from, from that point on, the Pharisees moved forward with an action plan to kill, to kill Jesus. They, they moved forward in this way, and so they also wanted to see Lazarus killed as well. And so, but in the plot to kill Jesus, the high priest Caiaphas, um, he feared Jesus and, and what it meant for, for the rule and the influence of the Pharisees over the people um, of Israel and, and over the people who were, who were Jews in, in Jerusalem. And so in the plot to kill Jesus, he actually says something really profound, uh, but really quite true. And in chapter 11, verse 50, he's uh, Caiaphas talking to the other, the other Pharisees. He says this, he says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for, for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. perish. See, Caiaphas said these words and put into motion the plan to actually kill Jesus, um, to get Jesus out of the way. And his words are filled with irony, so much irony in that, in that he wanted to kill Jesus to get him out of the way to preserve the Jewish custom. And he says, for one to die is well enough to preserve our power and our influence over the Jews. Little did he know that that was the plan all along. It was, that was a plan all along, but it wasn't one of power. It was one of, of salvation and one of freedom. See, in the, in the same way God looked at his creation, he said, it is better for one man to die than to kill a whole nation, a whole people, a whole world. He said this, I will give them me. And so even before the entry into Jerusalem, this whole plan was set that Jesus would be the final sacrifice for sin and, and living the perfect life we cannot live. He would suffer the penalty of sin that we deserve and he would conquer the death that plagues our souls. He would no longer, um, there would no longer be need, need to be a shedding of blood because his blood would be the last blood that would need to be shed for the sin of the world. He would create a new people to himself for those who are sinners so so everybody so you me everyone in this world sinners who would confess and believe in him they would be saved now this is, this is all where this is going, all where this is getting to. See, the, the Jews, they would no longer need to be reminded and just just a reminder of how God had delivered them from Egypt, but he was, well, now we can look forward to conquering sin and death and his promise to return to create a new heaven and a new earth. And all of that was already in motion before John 12. It was already set. And see, we, we can understand that Lazarus' testimony was so powerful regarding who Jesus was and it, and it being such close proximity to Jerusalem um, that the Jews actually began to leave the temple to go out and hear this Jesus. Chapter 12, verses nine through 11 says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not, not only uh, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See, this testimony brought the crosshairs on Jesus and on Lazarus. Many Jews were believing in Jesus and in fear, the Pharisees of the day sought to kill the two who they saw to be a threat to their power. That was their concern. They didn't care about pointing people to God. They they didn't care about any of that stuff. They wanted to point power to themselves. The only reason they cared about the power of Jesus is because he was taking away their power. And so as we get to this this John 12 text, in the other gospels, as Jesus Jesus prepared to enter the city of Jerusalem uh, during the Passover, he sent two disciples ahead. He sent them into in to, Bethphage, and, and he said when they enter the city, they will find a donkey, and next to it, a colt, the foal of a donkey, and they'll be tied up. And he, he went to them, and he, said, he t- sent two disciples and said, go find that donkey, go find that colt, and bring them to me. And if anyone says, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And so they did, and on their way back, they put their robes onto this donkey, and Jesus climbed onto this colt, and the donkey led this colt, and the disciples, and Jesus, into Jerusalem. And so we see this. Here we go. Chapter 12, verse 12, it says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so here's what we see is everything up to this point of Jesus' earthly ministry culminates at this moment. The entry... Of the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem. See, Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And, and a Passover festival was filled with religious and pious Jews, and all of them were welcoming in their Messiah. See, this festival, uh, the Passover festival, was a celebration of the people's freedom from their bondage in Egypt. It was a festival in remembering God's deliverance from their captors. And so a city that was usually filled with 40,000 people was now um, a destination and bursting at the seams with hundreds of thousands of people. And so with Bethany only uh, two miles away, the word that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus uh, went out from there. It went out from there. And so what happens, looking at, at verse 12, it says, the crowd heard that he was coming. His name preceded him. He had done many miracles before. He had taught with authority before, but this one moment is what made them realize that who Jesus was. Those who heard about Lazarus passed the word and and many most likely understood its significance and and they came to welcome him as the Messiah. Now see, uh, John MacArthur actually notes that this is the, the collision of two crowds One coming from Jerusalem, rushing out of the city gates to go to meet him as Jesus came into the city. And another crowd that was already with him and already following him and massing into one large group. See, many times Jesus had already seen these large crowds. He, he fed 5,000, which we know is 5,000 men, so include their family. Same thing with feeding of the 4,000. Same thing with when the, when the crowds rushed on him, when he was going to see Jairus' daughter and, and the woman of blood was trying to touch him, he was crushed in by a large crowd. When he would teach, um, when he would come across uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee, there'd be a crowd waiting for him. So he was used to crowds, but this crowd was like none other. This crowd was one that had not been seen before. It was like a small army coming to meet him. Um, the crowd from Jerusalem rushed out from the gates as those who are welcoming a conquering king. And that's, that's what we understand from, from this verse. They, they heard who he was coming um, and they responded. And so we're going to be able to pull four different things out of this text this morning, or out, of, out of this section, four things we can know. And here's the thing. This is one of the moments of scripture that brings us to the reality that Jesus evokes a response. There's no middle ground with Jesus. It's either acceptance or rejection. It's either acceptance or or denial. There's no middle ground. See, the crowds cheered, and and we see that eventually the disciples were confused and that his followers couldn't be quiet, and they kept on testifying, and that the Pharisees plotted to kill him. See, even today, Jesus evokes a response. And even right now, as, as I'm teaching this passage, uh, it's going to evoke a response within us. Some are accepting, and some are, some are, are, are I'm already there, right? Some are questioning. Um, some, some are like rolling their eyes, or you know, at home, like I have to watch this, you know, uh, already at home, like rolling their eyes. Some don't believe. Some find the story impaus- uh, implausible. Some, some rejoice in this. Some are cringing at it. Some are booing in their hearts at it. Some might be booing around. I don't know, right? Um, but that's the reality. And this is one of the truths that surpasses all time is that Jesus evokes a response. And so here's the question you have to ask yourself is what kind of response does the word Jesus, as the person of Jesus, as a God, man, Jesus evoke within your own heart? How have you responded to Jesus? Because whether or not we want to admit it, we've responded to Jesus one of two ways. And so there's no middle ground. But here we see with this crowd, those who were out to meet him, those who rushed to meet him, they welcomed him with excitement. See, this crowd was already in Jerusalem again for the Passover and is larger than what typically would be in Jerusalem for that time of year. Um, but the cheering crowds may have drawn the wrong conclusion. Jesus raised Lazarus, but now those cheering are looking at Jesus saying, Look at our king. He is going to be unstoppable. You cannot stop him. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. They're cheering Jesus in, saying, hey, everybody, look at this. Look at our Messiah. He is unstoppable. And this is what begins to make the the religious Pharisees nervous. They they begin to see their power slipping as they refuse to acknowledge what's actually happening here. And so they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And look, verse 13, it says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They welcomed him and they cheered him. And there are two very real understandings of the triumphal entry. There's two very different understandings of this entry here. To those who were cheering, it was, it was one of immediate victory and they, they thought that their political and religious foes were going to be defeated. And so, it was it was that it was the ultimate high of vindication for them. It was it was the it was the look, look at us. Look, we are going to be powerful. We're going to be great. And that was their thought they were cheering in this Jesus, but for Jesus he knew that his entrance, this entrance into Jerusalem, even with people cheering, it was his entrance to death before his victory. He knew that he was not under any delusion that he was some earthly conquering king. He knew what his entrance into Jerusalem meant. And even as they cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even as they, even as they cheered that, even as they waved palm branches and, and set them on the road in front of Jesus, he knew what this entrance meant. And so, so many movies, uh, they, they, when you watch these kind of passion movies, they show this scene um, as, as a smiling Jesus on the back of a donkey. I get the picture, like, you know, we we often view this scene and we're like, we're cheering, yeah, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we're seeing these smiling Jesus, like, hello, hello. But really, he looks like a beauty pageant winner waving to the home crowd from the back of a convertible. See, that's the the reality, that's the picture we get. But I don't think that that was the case. I think this case would have been a burden Jesus seeing those who are proclaiming him as Messiah, who he knew in a matter of days would be screaming, crucify him. Even before this, in other Gospels, even before this moment, it says that Jesus stopped and he wept for Jerusalem. That's the reality of this crowd. And that's the picture that we get of this smiling Jesus being ushered into a city. But Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew what was about to take place. And he was a burdened Christ for his people. And so let's take a, a deeper look into these two elements, the, the palms and the proclamation. As he, as he entered, palm branches are waved and laid at this colt's feet. And palm branches signified in in that time victory over the enemy. The palm branch was, was very, very uh, True to, to th- this culture of being a symbol of victory, even you know hundreds of years after this, you know uh, they would they would mint uh, palm branches on the coins, signifying a victory. We see we see this clearly. We see it's a victory of the end. We see clearly in Second Kings nine that the spreading of palm branches was, was a sign of welcoming in royalty. They clearly were desiring Jesus to be a king. There's no doubt about that. To come over and take over and free them from these rulers. These Roman rulers. They, They may have thought Jesus king, but honestly, they didn't know what that truly meant. And you and I might claim Jesus is king, but do we know what that truly means? Right? They were clearly looking at this. And they thought Jesus king, but they didn't know what that meant. Palm branches were calmly waved as a sign of military victory as a conquering king had returned back to its city. It was a welcome. It was an homage to their leader, one who had great might. Another reason we know that the Jews wanted him as as a mighty earthly king was was because of their shouting Hosanna. Now within the church, we, we shout that Hosanna, and that's true. But in this, Hosanna actually means salvation now or saves now. And ultimately, look, they were right. Salvation was coming and salvation was now. Um, but the people, what the people had in mind and what Jesus had intended were two completely different things. See, this, this thought that we understand, this, this Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is actually, is backed up in Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 had actually become a, almost a war anthem from the people of Jerusalem. It was a, it was a of, chant of sorts at different Jewish festivals proclaiming their, their victory. Uh, it was the antiquity of God save the queen or is kind of the American version of hail to the chief. That's what this really was kind of coming across. And it wasn't that the, it, it wasn't that the people of Israel weren't eager for their Messiah. Um, they just had the expectation of power and might that didn't actually show in the way that God had intended. See, they cheered, they cheered, save us Now. They, they cheered these things. Blessed are you because you come in the name of the Lord. Save us now. The Messiah is here. Save us now, our God and our King. That's what they're saying. Look at this. Psalm eighteen twenty five says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light a, uh, to shine upon us. Equating the Messiah with this, this thought of light and shining and, and, and how glorious and how, how great this time would be. And Psalm 18 isn't the only place the Messiah is compared to a shining light. We see um, in Isaiah 42.6, it, um, it says, Isaiah prophetically says about the coming Christ that he'll be a light to the nations. It says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will, I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations. We, I'm reminded of a, a Psalm 60 where it says, Arise, shine for your light has come and let the glory of the Lord um, rise upon you. See, darkness covers the whole earth and thick darkness over his, his people. But the Lord rises upon you and the glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your own of your dawn. We look at this picture of this prophetic moment in this period of history that we have written down in this text that is the culmination of everything Jesus has been saying. He's saying, I am here. See, the Old Testament was screaming about who the Messiah was, but see, a blind eye was turned to the reality of this moment. The prophecies were there in front of the Jews. It was clear what was going to happen, but it's not what they wanted. One of, my, one of my favorite moments from this narrative is actually recorded in uh, Luke 19. Um, as people cried out, Hosanna, bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees actually looked at Jesus and said, you need to rebuke these people. Well, he responded with, well, if they remain silent, even the stones will cry out. See, how powerful is the reality of this moment? How powerful is that reality? Jesus was claiming that he is the Messiah. There was no questioning about it any longer. See, notice this. Everything they said was correct. Those who were cheering, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everything they were saying was correct. They, they quoted scripture. They, they shouted a psalm. They cheered and they waved the palm of They did everything right. But here's the thing. Everything behind what they were doing and what they were saying, the intent behind it was wrong. See, what Jesus was offering and what people were cheering at were actually at odds with each other. One commentator said this Jesus had rejected their offer of a war bound kingship on Palm Sunday. They rejected his kingship of peace on Good Friday. Hear that again. Jesus had rejected their offer of a war bound kingship on Palm Sunday. They rejected his kingdom of peace on Good Friday. And how true! is that? How many um, of those who welcomed Jesus uh, into uh, the city screaming, Hosanna, only a few days later would be screaming, crucify him? See, later in the week, those who proclaimed him king said, what king? They said, what, what king are you talking about? Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 19. They, they say these things or uh, chapter 19, verse 12, sorry, and they say, what king are you talking about? Verses 14 and 16 of, of chapter 19, you know, they went from going, from crying, Hosanna, 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 to, look, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar, our king. And so we see that there is was complete disconnect. Later that week, those who were claiming him king now said, what king? We have no king other than Caesar. And so we, we see that this, come, this entrance, this triumphal entry was a, was a very public event. Like I said, we, he was claiming that he is the Messiah. This is a moment where the words of Jesus of don't tell anybody now are screaming the proclamation of I am he. And that he is the one that they have been eagerly waiting for. They are cheering for the right Messiah. They are cheering for the right man. They're cheering for the right God, but they're doing it with the wrong motive and the wrong heart. And so imagine this picture, a, a scraggly, humble God-man riding into these gates on, not a donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey, even lowering his status. And they're saying, he's claiming to be the warring king that we want. But he's saying, I'm not the warring king that you want. I am the salvation that you need. And, and this is the epitome of unmet expectations when it comes to these just cheering crowd. But here's the thing. They still welcomed him in. Like, I don't know what they thought was going to happen next. They were, they were cheering him in. They knew what this meant. That their, their idea of a warring king and what they wanted and what Jesus actually was bringing was, was two completely different things. But here's the thing. What do they think was going to happen next? Did they think that he would get into the city gates and then jump down and, and pull a sword out from secretly from nowhere and say, attack? I, I mean, did, did they, like... Did they think that this was like the ultimate misdirection? Like, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. He was welcomed in as a conquering king, but he would be a suffering servant. And so I know that this is Palm Sunday, but history actually tells us that Jesus rode into the city on a Monday. And that Monday that he rode into the city actually was the same day that the lambs were chosen for the sacrifice of the Passover. And so, how much truthful, uh, how much truer so is that reality? That here is the day that the Passover lamb is to be selected to be slain, and Jesus rides in saying, Don't you get it? Don't you understand what's going on? See, there's an ancient ancient historian named Josephus, and he actually said how many people were in the city. And one year, there was upwards of 250,000 lambs that were slain for this Passover festival. Now, that was one lamb per family. So if you could even imagine, you think about 10 people per family, that's 2.5 million people in the city. And we think about that each lamb was a sacrifice of the family. And it was a river of blood that flowed out of the temple and out of Jerusalem. Why? Because they understood and we understand that the wages of sin is death. And this lamb was the substitute for the sinner. And so as John writes this, he could even be looking back and saying, like, if you only knew what you were asking, if you only knew the people that were cheering, if you only really knew what you were asking, only if you only really understood what this would bring, whatever, whatever you're thinking, only if you knew the road to come will be of one of violence culminating into peace with God. And so the Passover, being remembered as a time where the Lord spared his people, they shed the lamb's blood over their doorposts so that the, that the spirit would pass by in that day, when that happened, that was probably a time of, of fear and anxiety. And like, what if I didn't do this right? And what if like, I, I you know, put it on my doorpost? And what if it's like the wrong place? Am I, am I, am I done for? right? Um, it's probably, it's definitely a time of trust and where, where they are to say, you know what, God has told us to do this, and so we're going to follow, and we're going to be obedient, and we're going to do what he has told us to do. And that is putting this blood above the doorpost. And it was a time of all these emotions, even for those who were faithful, even for those who were obedient. And here's the reality. In that moment, the Lord proved himself faithful. And in this moment, in this triumphal entry, he was doing it again. He was doing it again. He was saying, look, this is my time. This is who I am. Your claims of Messiah, they might be on your terms, but you are right, but your motivation is wrong. But I'm going to show you what a real warring king is going to look like because I'm not just going to beat your earthly enemies. I'm going to conquer all enemies, spiritual and physical in the spirit and in the flesh, I'm going to beat them all. Verses 14 and 15, they say, And as Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, going back to these prophetic um, texts of the Old Testament, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your kingdom is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's, yes, right here, another prophecy fulfilled. See, every Jew would know the prophetic words here of, of Zechariah 9, nine They'd understand the significance of the moment. They were taught to await the coming Messiah who would come to set them free. And see, ironically, the Jews of the day of Zechariah actually didn't even have a king. So when this was written, a prophet told a kingless nation that you are waiting for a king. And this is what it's going to look like. And so we see that John uses kind of this loose translation of Zechariah 9-9 in this passage. And and John is most likely looking back the whole time um, as he writes this. And as he writes this gospel using the powerful words of Zechariah 9-9 and probably also uh, Isaiah 40. See, Zechariah 9-9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey. That's the quote, that's, what, that's the, the passage that's shoved in every gospel account of this. But then Isaiah 40, verse 6 says this, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Listen, Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. We see the reality and the prophetic um, reality this text Coming to a complete culmination of Jesus on this cult coming into the city. Do not miss the significance because so many times we say, Well, is it really fulfilled? Are these prophecies really fulfilled? Has this really already happened yet? I'm sitting there looking at the scripture, going, This is this is yet to come, and this has already happened, all these different things. We know that God is faithful in all of these things. See what John is saying is that the king is returning, and at this time the king is returning once and for all. The shedding of blood will once again protect his people. And this time, it's not going to be the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sheep. It's going to be the blood of the Lord himself. This time, it'll be final. The the shedding of blood will once again protect his people. He will be salvation for you. One time for all, when he says it is finished, he meant it. And so he came on a donkey that symbolizes peace, and it's a very different picture than that of a war horse of his prophetic return and Revelation. See, even the, even the donkey in this moment held significance. See, former kings David and Solomon, they, they rode into cities um, as a sense of humility and a sense of kingship and a sense of peace. See, even so, like an emissary would also send a, a donkeys before them loaded with goods and loaded with gifts to appease the enemy, stopping further bloodshed. It was a, it was a peace offering. And prophetically, we see again Jesus who entered the city on a colt. He was being our final peace offering. Ushered in on that Monday when the the sacrificial lamb was selected, he was coming in on the prophetic colt of a donkey. Not coming in on a donkey itself, but on the colt. Lowering his status to the people even more, proclaiming that I am he. And so as all these things unfolded before their eyes. As all these things Crowd screaming and cheering, Hosanna, putting the palm branches down. I love verse 16. He says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, I love this. The disciples' lack of clarity um, in this moment. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't permanent. See, before their eyes was the reality of John 2, 19 through 21 beginning to play out. Let's read that. It says this, Jesus answered them talking about, um, verse 18 we can start. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show, show us for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to rebuild this temple and you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he uh, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, all these things begin to culminate in this moment. See, verse 22, they remembered. They might've been, they they might've not known what was going on at this time. They might've had the the fake smile as they walked with Jesus in like, yeah, Hosanna, yeah, what's happening here? Right, they might've had that. you know, But the fact that they didn't know what was going on is nothing new. If you read anywhere in the scriptures, when they talk about the disciples, usually they're confused. Um, but here's the thing. Um, they're asking the right questions. Who is the Messiah? Who is this Christ? When is he coming? How will we know? Um, they, were, they were like this until Christ was glorified, and then they understood. Right? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus had taught the disciples the Old Testament text that point to him, and they still didn't see it. And so the disciples are just going along probably with the cheering and not knowing actually what was going on in that moment. And and I do it, but here's the thing. It's easy to pick on the disciples. Um, Call them dense or call them unintelligent or call call them blind. It's easy to do, but here's the thing. Um, How often is that us? How often has Jesus clearly laid out things before our own lives and we're going, is that really the way it needs to be? Or I'm really confused right now, right? How many times is that us? How many times have we searched the scripture only to see our own misguided steps because we've taken something that what we think it means and applied it to our life and it doesn't mean that. See, we we see that even though we know scripture, we always seem to find something new every time we study it. That's a good thing because you're becoming more like Christ. Um, But they remembered and in this triumphal entry, we see that they remembered. And see, they are one of four different responses. That's the fourth lesson from the triumphal entry. There are four different responses here. In verses twelve through 13, we see the cheering crowds. Some sincere, some fickle as all get out. Why were they there? They were there because they heard of what happened with Lazarus and they wanted to see this Jesus. Some probably wanted to see his glory. Some probably understood what was really going on. Some, it might have been a mob mentality. Some of them, it might have just come up and, and they're like, I'm going to go with the flow. Some of them it might have been like, I'm, I'm amped up. I'm, and there's something emotional within me. I'm going to fall and run out to that. Um, because they heard, and maybe they wanted more signs. Maybe they wanted more proof. I have no idea. But that's one voice, the cheering crowds. In verse 16, we see the confused yet consistent disciples who were going with Jesus faithfully, not knowing, not sure what was going on, but they still were walking with him consistently and faithfully knowing that he is who he said he is and they're going to hope at the end of this he's going to make sense of it all he does then we see verses 17 through 19 verses 17 says the crowd that had been with him when he called lazarus out of the tomb had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness they could not shut their mouths And it's clear, anytime you see that someone has an interaction with Jesus through the scriptures or even in this life now, they cannot be quiet. When your heart is radically changed because of the glory of King Jesus, you cannot shut your mouth. Those who saw the glory of Jesus kept on proclaiming this glory. They saw what Jesus had done. They saw who he was. They understood the magnitude of that situation. And they, their eyes were opened and they proclaimed the glory of Jesus. And the question, church, is that you? Have you seen the glory of Jesus and are you proclaiming? Are you carrying out what the gospel mission is? Are you proclaiming? Are you, are you promoting the gospel? Are you preaching the gospel? Are you making disciples? Is that you? Because anyone who's come to interaction with Jesus, again, it's either accepting or rejecting. And so we see that those who, who saw this firsthand were proclaiming because it was then, they saw what happened with Lazarus. They saw the tomb of Lazarus. They saw the, the reality of the risen Lazarus, and they came. And I think, I think at times it's, it's less about the risen Lazarus and more about the man who raised Lazarus. And I, hopefully that's where our hearts get as well. So often we want to focus on the miracles of Jesus rather than Jesus who, who did the miracle. We say, Jesus, I, I need this A, B, and C, but we focus on that, but we, we, we neglect Jesus. We neglect the miracle giver for the miracle itself. And so we also see verses 18 and 19, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So that's the fourth voice. The Pharisees thought that his popularity would fade, they, 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 but people kept on rushing to him. The, the men who were once the spiritual authority seemed to have power no longer. The Pharisees' power was seeming to wane. They, uh, they saw him. They could do nothing else except for plot and figure out a way. So the, they were trying to silence those who can't be silenced, Right? We see the Pharisees who plotted. The Pharisees saw what was happening and put their plan into motion to accept the the betrayal um, by Judas of Jesus, right? And I love, I love, love their last line recorded in in verse 19. And they say this, you see that what you're gaining is nothing. They're like, there is no stopping. Like whatever we say to these people, we're telling them Jesus rebuke them. And he says, no, they're just going to get amped up more. They, they seen what he has done. Like there's nothing we can do about this. Um, but look, the world has gone after him. Like, what are we going to do now? And this is why that plot to murder Jesus was put into place so fast through a sham trial and through an unethical way. But that last line, the world has gone after him. How such true are those words. So in one way or or another, whether salvation or hatred, the world has gone after Jesus. You have gone after Jesus. I have gone after Jesus, depending on what that means. See, the perspective and how you view Jesus actually changes your heart towards Jesus, right? And so as we begin passion, we beg you to examine this gospel, examine the gospel of John and answer the question, who is Jesus? See, the scary thing is some of us want the militant Jesus right now. Um, we hope for Jesus on the war horse. We want that now. We, we, want, uh, we want him to come and conquer our enemies. That's what we want. That's what we pray for, right? He will return on a war horse, but it won't be on our expectation. It'll be on his expectation. It won't be on our terms. It'll be on his terms. And so it'll, it'll, be, it'll be him coming from the heavens. It'll be him that has king of kings and Lord and lords on, inside of his thighs. It'll be him coming on the war horse next time, but we don't live there yet. Some of us still want the earthly king Jesus. And the scary thing is, I think some of us would be actually happier with an earthly king Jesus than a heavenly king Jesus. We, we want him to rule and to tell the world that we are right and they are wrong. And here's the thing, when we do that, we actually are the embodiment of those screaming in the wrongful way, Hosanna, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. We become like those who usher Jesus in with the palm branches, wanting an earthly king, only to reject him when he doesn't do what we want him to do. We do, we have a king who has perfectly fulfilled all that was foretold of him. This is the God we serve. See, we don't have a God who doesn't rule. Uh, We we have a king who doesn't rule for his own riches, but for rules for our salvation. So, ending here, as we move forward in Passion Week and ultimately Resurrection Sunday, here are four points of application that I want us, that'll help guide us uh, through even this difficult time of being apart. Here's the first thing, we respond to his testimony. Have you responded to the grace and mercy of Jesus? And I don't mean on your own way. I mean on his way. I mean on his terms. I don't mean, well, yeah, I kind of followed you. No, no, no. Have you responded to his mercy? Have, have you responded to the offer of salvation that he has for you? Have, has, uh, he has proven himself and, and we must respond to the reality of, of this Messiah. See, our Christ who comes in the name of the Lord, if you haven't done this, I would highly encourage you right now in the com- or even in the coming days to consider Jesus. Consider who he is and what he has done. Um, draw near to him and respond to his offer of salvation. You need to respond to his testimony and that's done of either accepting or rejecting. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And I wish we'd get that out of our culture. That if I go to church, if I pray to prayer, if I was baptized when I was younger, that I'm all good. That's not true. It is the confession and belief in Jesus that he is the son of God, that he was killed for your sin, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, that he has conquered sin and that he has conquered death and you put your faith in him and him alone. Here's the second thing. We rejoice in his obedience. I, for one, am thankful that Jesus followed through in obedience to the Father. We we are ever so thankful for the obedience of Christ that we can come before the throne of God with Jesus as our mediator. So now we walk in obedience to Christ. See, we live our lives for his glory. Galatians 2.20, right? Galatians 2.20 says, for I have been crucified with Christ for it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what we live under church. And so we live in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel. We fight against sin. We repent and ask forgiveness for when we do sin and we walk in obedience towards him. We remember his obedience and we walk in uh, in obedience as an example. Here's the third thing. We rest in his promises. God has proven himself time and time again. If you stop and look back at your life as you follow Jesus, you would see how many faithful promises he has fulfilled in your life. He has given us hope And he has given us a promise that he is not done with us yet. The the promises of God are littered all throughout the scripture. He promises us that we are not alone, that we have hope. Um, His promises uh, are are that we can overcome sin and temptation, that he hears us, that he loves us, that we have salvation in him, that um, his promises in the life of the believer are endless and they sustain us. It's hard to do that sometimes. Especially moments like now when we're trying to figure out what in the world happens next. It is hard to rest in his promises. But church, remember that he is faithful to his promises and he is faithful to salvation to you and he is faithful into who he is. He's faithful to himself and therefore we know that we can put our faith in him. See, so we've not been given a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. And so that's the reality of where we live. We have been given hope in Christ. So remember his promises. There. And here's the second, here's the last thing. We remember his second coming. We rejoice in that church. We know that Jesus doesn't have a headstone. We know that we're not waiting for him to find, for, for people to find his body. We know that he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. This is what everything culminates to. We are not a people waiting for a dead man to rise, but we anxiously await for our risen Savior to return. This is where we find ourselves. This is the promise of his testimony that he will return and that he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. He will take his people and we will be with the Lord forever. That is what we put our hope in. We will run to him and welcome him a second time when he has this triumphal entry. And So you see how we welcome Jesus, how we love Jesus, tells us a lot about what we believe about Jesus. Only a king that comes to deal with our sin can offer us what we need. We don't need a warring king. We don't need an earthly king. We need to put our faith, hope, assurance, everything in the reality of a salvific king. We need a king who is the Passover lamb to take away the sin of the world. And this is why the entrance of Jesus is triumphal. This is why we can worship him. And this is why we proclaim him. This is why we exclaim, come Lord Jesus Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And God, we we need you. God, we rejoice in, in who you are, God. I, I look at this story, God. I look at this narrative with brand new eyes. I look at this narrative with new eager expectation that you have already come in. You've already done what you said you would do. That all the Old Testament prophecies that point to you, God, you have fulfilled and we are waiting for you to return. God, let us rest in the promise that we are not alone, that we will see another magnificent triumphal entry, this time with a trumpet blast and a light from the sky. God, we want you here. God, and I pray that we would welcome you here. God, I pray that as we sing in these next few moments, God, that we would sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come, that that would be the cry of our hearts today. God, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for showing yourself faithful. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.